Hi, I'm John Atak, and I'm very pleased to welcome my good friend Joe Zimhart. And um, you've been reading, reading, and reviewing a book, so uh, we thought we'd have a, a a little bit of a conversation about that. Hi, John. How you doing? Uh, so yeah, we discussed uh, this whole thing about genes and and uh, how memes can affect our minds. And and this idea of the meme was coined to some extent by Richard Dawkins, a famous atheist. So the book I just read is this one uh, called The Parasitic Mind by God Sad, and it came out last October, so it's fairly new. Mm. And it, he's talking about how infectious ideas are killing common sense. Now, just to give an overview, he's definitely more in that uh, conservative camp that believes the left has gone way too far with uh, ideas that have crept into the university based on postmodernism. That's his main target. Sure. And and I, I half agree with him there because I think a lot of postmodern ideas are very speculative and you know way, way out there. And and if you read Jacques Derrida, mm -hmm. it it gets almost obfuscated to the point where I can't understand what the guy is saying. Yeah. You know, so that's the kind of postmodernism that Saad is after. However, his point of view um, is is quite uh, harsh in, in the sense of, of he picks on what I, I call low-hanging left fruit. Yeah. In other words, it's easy for anyone that's thinking to, to dismiss some of the ideas from the left, uh, you know, the extremes almost evangelical approach to to uh, climate change science-based and uh, and so he argues about that point of view also but but anyway so, so you were mentioning that that there were two camps whether you know the Mendel Dawkins and the other one could you explain that a little further and maybe it could help me frame some of the talk that I'm going to Sure. Um, we basically have, you know, Mendel is the first to posit the idea of, of genes. Up until him, Darwin and Wallace had thought that, that things mix together. But in fact, Mendel shows that there are components that stay the same and they join uh, through the chromosomes. That argument travels through to the selfish gene, the idea that that we are not the actors, the agents in our lives. It's just our selfish little genes that are pushing us along. It kind of replaces libido theory when, you know, all we want to do is have sex, basically, um, or, or kill ourselves, which is the other end of the Freudian theory, of course. So th this puts forward the idea that, that we don't know what's going on. It's just our genes trying to perpetuate themselves. And it gives the idea that, that genes are, they almost take over from the idea of, spirituality and that they are permanent things that are replicating themselves. Now, that's that's where we get to. In the 1970s, this ar argument, which was only just being made by Dawkins, was already being shaken by the discovery of epigenetics, that, that in a single generation, there could be a transformation because of the environment that caused a change in the DNA, that, that caused evolution to change right there. Now, 
you know, looking back, the original proofs of evolution, which were made by a man called David Lack, uh, who'd been in the Galapagos Islands studying Darwin's finches of all creatures in the 1930s under the direction of Julian Huxley, Aldous Huxley's brother. And he then went away and fought World War II, not entirely on his own, other, other people helped him and thankfully survived and was able to put together, I think it was eight years of work, which was the first proof that an evolutionary change had happened in a population. You know, rather than hybridizing, breeding dogs, and it, this had happened out in nature. But we then moved forward into the 1990s and a group of biologists, uh, among them Eva Yablonka, who's in Tel Aviv, um, deeply questioned you know, by adding epigenetics to the model, they deeply questioned whether it was simply natural selection and, of course, sexual selection, the choices made um, that, that keep a, a population red-haired or, you know, whatever characteristic is considered desirable. Um, and they added to this not simply epigenetics, but also symbolic evolution. And the simple transformation is that until this thought, genes were considered to be read-only in computer terms. So they, you could pass on this item millennium by millennium, and it would remain the same. Um, now, she and her colleagues proved that this was not, in fact, true. Um, so with epigenetics, we now know that if a grandfather ate too many McDonald's hamburgers, or indeed any other brand of hamburgers, I don't want to be overly specific, it could be Denny's, you know, big boys, norms, anywhere. Somebody ate too many hamburgers, their grandchild could have problems with the production of ghrelin and leptin, the two enzymes that control appetite. So it was shown that evolution can happen immediately. Symbolic evolution is the fascinating part of it, that by the way we act, the way we behave, the things we say, the things we believe, these can also have an effect upon our, our DNA and you know, what we will pass on. The, the theory is called evolutionary development, and I'm told it's largely accepted by biologists under the age of 40, but we're in a big paradigm shift. So if we take the gene and the meme, in Dawkins' ideas, you've got this insoluble unit that travels through space and time and that's the gene it's read only nothing you can do and from there he posited the idea that culture is based upon similarly insoluble ideas that pass through the generations now there is no basis in reality for either of these ideas they, they sound great but the evidence no longer supports them and the meme has moved off to mean you know, something that people see on the internet and share with their mates. But of course, culture is changing all the time. But, you know, there aren't set little ideas. We're not doing what the Romans did. You know, when we go back and look at Cicero, we're living in a different time. So, so that's the idea. As an evolutionary psychologist, he undoubtedly, you know, most evolutionary psychologists are working on a, a theory of evolution that really was overthrown in the 1980s and 90s, but they haven't come back to study biology again. Even um, Yuval Harari, there's a book called Sapiens, which has sold something like a million copies and people are really into it. And he talks about the modules that we developed in our brains on the savannah, very popular thought. The 
the point is, of course, that's not true. That because we're developing all the time, evolving all the time, um, we are not, you know, we don't believe in religion because, as Scott Attron, the sociologist, put it, we saw some one of our ancestors, distant ancestors, 100,000 years ago, saw a bush shaking and couldn't explain it, so believed in God. We, we don't, those modules don't exist. And evolutionary psychologists mm -hmm. tend to be, play, you know, playing with things which, as far as I'm concerned, have no reality. They're fairy tales. So there we go. There, there's okay, let me, let me get in here. That's great, John. Thank you. Um, by the way, a lot of what you're saying is, is covered by uh, Siddhartha Mukherjee in the Gene and in Intimate History. Mm. And it came out in 2016. I, I just looked. He covers epigenetics. And I think I, when it came out, and I've forgotten 95% of it. So I have to reread it to, Same for to Sol, get yeah. the grasp of it like, like yeah. you have. Um, but but getting back to uh, God Saad in this book, uh, the, uh, the Parasitic Mind, I think you're correct. He, he almost sees the gene as uh, like Newton and people prior to him, Leibniz maybe saw the corpuscle as being the being or, 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 or whatever. Uh, it was yeah. kind of like the little monad or the, monad, yeah. the, the atom, you know, type of thing. Um, and, and of course that's been, been challenged quite a bit by quantum physics and, and other theories. Mm. But uh, Saad in, in his argument, uh, you know, his, his main target is, and, and I think he does this for effect because he's, he, he's, he's more on the right. He, he kind of defends him rationally and they had rational arguments for doing it and they did you know and so did people that didn't but but he doesn't give much weight to the people that didn't vote for him as if they were irrational and this is where he he falls apart in his book i think it hmm. when he becomes political uh but but just to correct what he is he he's the author of a book that was quite famous uh years ago called the evolutionary bases of consumption the consuming instinct and, um, and in his book, Evolutionary Psychology in the Business Sciences. So he applies evolutionary sciences to the way the business operates, which is an interesting spin. Um, and, and he's had, uh, you know, a lot of people like his work. Uh, he's appeared on Dave Rubin, Joe Rogan, Glenn Beck show. Uh, you know, he's endorsed by Jordan Peterson, as we said. And uh, uh, so, so there's a kind of a, I think a, almost a fundamentalist aspect to his work, which holds him back as far as becoming more fluid, let's say, like you said, with epigenetics. He, he's not there yet, I don't, I don't know why. Uh, maybe he has an argument against it, which I don't know. Uh, but but his uh, work is quite popular. It's influencing a lot of people out there, uh, uh, you know, and and that whole, milieu of podcasters as getting millions of hits yeah. you know so yeah there's it's big business in a sense so so keeping the controversy the 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 you know the the weight of argument kind of low where there's low hanging left fruit and being argued about by you know the the right that has might and all of that uh uh makes for good media presence and, and and people like that kind of of sport you know the the 
in fact, he, um, he prides himself on being what he calls a honey badger. You know, if, if someone insults him on one of his statements regarding, uh, uh, you know, his criticism of the left, he will go after that person if he sees that it's ridiculous and, and embarrass them or, or, you know, undermine their argument any way he can. And he likens himself and, and says that we all should be honey badgers and, uh, you know, never give in and, and even take on bigger animals like a pride of lions and hold them off like honey badgers can do, you know. So um, uh, this, uh, I mean, it's true. The honey badger is a mean badger. You know, it has it has defenses built up over, you know, time that, that were funded to it by evolution, which make it you know, a real stinker when it comes to fighting. It, it, it's mean and it's and it, and it can endure quite a bit of uh, abuse because of its tough skin. It's hard to get teeth into it. Um, but I would argue that that's not very good when it comes to uh, discussing ideas with other people. Uh, most people will just walk away from a honey badger. I mean, I certainly would. Yeah. I don't want to get bit. And, uh, lions do. you know, and it kind of goes against yeah, it goes against my idea, like like in, in intervention and in exit counseling, where the approach is educational. You try to gain rapport, you try to work from within the person's belief system, and you try to expand on it and get them to understand in pieces what might be wrong here and there. And it's tedious and, and it doesn't always work, but it might not be as much fun as you know getting out there in a ring and 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 throwing blows at one another and seeing who bleeds the most, you know, which is kind of like Saad's approach, which I think is self-defeating he, he's preaching to the choir in, in this book you know the, the people if you look at the five-star reviews oh they love him and they think he's wonderful and there's very few other reviews so uh, um, uh, anyway i just wanted to bring that up as a, as a point of discussion in this in this uh, battle of ideas or the great debate as to what is real and what is true um, so the floor is yours john <laughs> yeah but I agree with you. Comparison to a honey badger is asinine. And that's comparison to an ass, by the way. Um, it's foolish because we don't want a society of um, vehement, vituperant, aggressive alpha males. Um, we want a society of collaborative people who are concerned about the feelings of others and wish to make rational argument. Honey badgers are not well known for their ability to reason. Right. They're well known for, for being unpleasant and they'll attack almost anything, um, except of course for the bird that leads them to the honey, which is one of the great mysteries of nature, but that's not mm -hmm. really our point here. Let's not stretch the metaphor too far. It, it strikes me that if we look at the right, let's think about the right. The right wing is fascism. That's what the right wing is it's a point where there is no democracy where there's tyranny i would say well, that hold on hold on a second let me stop you there because you know i i think the communist fascist debate lacks substance and 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 it's easy to to frame the opposing left or the opposing right in some kind of a totalitarian uh position and and i mean there's a lot of people i know on the right that don't have that position no, no I, and I'm they not, have rational not, arguments i'm not saying to be right of center is to be fascist i'm okay. saying the extreme right wing is okay. tyranny let's bear that in mind and i would say the best examples of it in the world today are north korea and china 
And they are countries mm -hmm. that I would call fascist because they have a tyranny. They have a leader who's in charge. So I'm just laying out the pitch here. I'm not getting into right. it. The extreme left is, is absolute state control of everything. So extreme right, right is a dictator in control of everything. The extreme left is the state controlling everything. Now, and and they both have they both have control of the military. Keep yes. that in mind. Yeah, absolutely. Which at Tiananmen Square proved to be vital. Um, so, what I'm saying is, in in a polarized view, if we just took those extremes, I'm find myself displeased by the the use of left and right, because they seem to have lost their meaning. Um, in the US at the moment, you have two centrist parties, the Democrats and the Republicans. They are neither of them left wing, they are neither of them right wing. Um, for the most part, Republicans believe people should look after themselves and there should be no welfare or a minimum of welfare. And the Democrats believe that sometimes in hard times, people need a helping hand. Of course, that didn't stop Bill Clinton from taking welfare away from people. The first president ever so to do a democrat and they then start tarring each other with these labels and it it seems to be more from what i'm seeing it seems to be more republicans tarring democrats as socialists without any real understanding of what the word socialist means it's a very complicated word in the 19th century bismarck who created the german empire used the word socialist to mean any program that helps the people, that's socialist. Mm -hmm. And so universal schooling, which was introduced by Prussia, the country he represented, um, was seen as socialist, it was a socialist move. We've now come into this kind of loaded language where this yeah, yeah. word means stuff I don't like, you know, or, and we see brickbats being thrown about. So I think the first thing is to pull out those terms and say what he's mm -hmm. calling left wing what we're calling right wing, these are so vague as to be meaningless terms. Um, what, what we are concerned with, or what I'm concerned with, is democracy. You know, mm -hmm. the, and I don't believe we're very good at it, but along with Churchill, I believe it's the best thing we found yet. And we could improve it massively by teaching kids to actually assert their point of view, not like honey badgers, you know, like um, human beings. That would probably be the way I'd like to see it done. So yeah, I think, uh, you know, the, just to bring this a little more into focus, he uses the honey badger image when you're in argument with someone that you consider completely wrong and they won't budge. You know, that's that's where he asserts that. And I think there are aspects of him which which are soft, you know, and, and, and educational. You know, so I don't mean to, to just frame him within that one animal. Uh, but, uh, you know, you brought up this whole idea of socialism. I mean, it was in the founding documents uh, and, uh, and behavior among the founding fathers of the United States. I mean, Benjamin Franklin started in Philadelphia one of the first socialist outreaches. You know, he initiated something like that in order to help the general population because, um, you know, the 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 rule among the wealthy was to get wealthier and, and to pay the workers the least they could in order to get wealthier. And, and that was 
common, you know, throughout the centuries. You know, so by moderating that, of course, government has to step in, which is how Ben Franklin framed it, in order to to make it more equitable. You know, you have you're, you're making your money off the sweat of these people, and they're not getting anything out of this, and you're taking all the all, all the good. Uh, there's something wrong with that picture. So you know, as a result, we break up monopolies. We we tax. Uh, people accordingly. And, and that's where the argument comes in, how much tax? Not that we don't need tax, but, you know, if, if you look, uh, it's almost a bipolar election cycle here where, you know, the, the Democrats come in and they tax more. And the uh, Republican comes in and almost like a robot, you know, with an algorithm, they tax less. <laughs> and, well, they say, so they it goes. Say, they say, read my lips, no more taxes, and then introduce new taxes, you know, but um, it, it can happen. Yeah, that, that 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 could get you unelected if you say something like that, which happened to George uh, Bush, uh, Bush Senior. Yeah, Senior, yeah. Um, yeah, and and I mean, what we know from our lifetimes now of involvement with belief systems. I mean, the there are sociologists who want to talk about new religious movements. I, I couldn't be bothered with that. Belief, belief systems, systems of belief, it's good mm -hmm. enough, it's scientific enough. And people come to believe all sorts of abstract things and they, they become so certain of these things that they're willing to lay down their lives for them. They're, you know, at, at, at most. And, and you start getting a polarized society where rather than saying, you know, I'm a patriot, which means I protect American values. It becomes, I'm a patriot, I support the Tea Party, you know, or whichever. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the struggle of American politics, this fascinates me that um, Teddy Roosevelt, he wanted, he was a trust buster. He didn't want the uber rich to be able to pass on their money as they have so successfully done mm -hmm. in America. So he comes up against it. Then his distant relative, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, sets up, is at the center of the New Deal, which, which, which I think is one of the most incredible moments in history where a group of really intelligent people come together and say, how do we function as a whole society? You know, rather than, because when you do look back to the 19th century, um, working a 12 hour day, five days a week and then half day on Saturday, that was normal. Unless of course- early well, we're, You know, John, in America, we're getting back to that. Yeah. Uh, it's very rare that an American family can make it on 40 hours a week with one breadwinner. I mean, you have to have two of them and even working uh, extra hours at a, at a different job. You know, it's, it's, they can't afford to send their children to college the way my father did with you know with minimal loans now it's maximal loans that takes 10 to 20 years to pay back if you get a major degree here um and and it, you know the the divide is is incredible and weakens the country is the problem communist china and their policies and india and its and its growth in in its capitalism uh, you know, we're doing this to ourselves is what's really frightening to me. 
I, I couldn't agree more. And, and I think with COVID-19, the, the problem has got a lot worse because Asia has dealt with COVID-19 very effectively. Mm -hmm. And the US and Britain in particular have made a complete mess. And it means that already the kind of Reaganomics, globalization, Thatcherism policies, which took away manufacturing from the US and Europe, are now really going to hit because Asia is capable of manufacturing stuff. We're not going to have the money to buy it. And globalization was all based on the idea we'll get these nice, we get this nice cheap foreign labor to do all the work. You know, Nike can be made in Indonesia. Um, we can have these special economic zones where the people are virtually slaves. And that's okay. It's a bit like Guantanamo Bay. It's outside of our jurisdiction, so we can do what we like there. Mm. And I think that morality is what has to be questioned. Um, if you look at a, a simple instance, I was on a plane to Chicago many years ago, and I sat with two, an old Armenian couple, and the, the guy said um, that he and his wife had had eight completely unnecessary surgical operations because they had insurance. And then he looked at me and he said, but at least we don't have mm -hmm. your socialist medicine. And I'm kind of going, yeah, but we, the same as you, have a socialist police force. We, the same as you, have a socialist education system. The state supports these things. And the idea that you can allow people within your population to grow ill, become infected and pass infections on, where you have to look after the whole of society, as the COVID-19 has rather eminently proved, you have to try and look after the whole society because otherwise even the uber rich will become ill. But that, you know, the, the, the founding fathers who were largely fairly wealthy people, um, but they nonetheless had some sense of, and even if it didn't extend to women or slaves, they had, and certainly not to the Native Americans, who, who Thomas Jefferson believed should be annihilated, of course, despite being a brilliant political philosopher, he wasn't very keen on Native mm -hmm. Americans. But they nonetheless had this, this sense of a complete society. And I think what's happened is, most especially in the United States, you have this division where there are people like Jordan Peterson uh, at one end of the scale, and at the other end, I don't know what's at the other end anymore. There doesn't seem to be very much socialism or anything that I would recognize as, as Marxism in the United States. There's just what's being called liberal. Well, you know, you, 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 you've, yeah, you, you, you find a lot of that, you know, on MSNBC and, and their pundits and the Huffington Post is kind of a, I mean, it'll show both sides, but but it leans way left in a lot of its uh, editorials and, and articles. So, so there is that that. Uh, uh, but, but they're not quoting Marx. They're not quoting Marx at you, are they? They're not saying there's no such thing no. as a bloodless revolution. So, revolutionary socialism is not really an issue. It it's right. the idea of what's come to be called socialism is the idea of compassion, the idea we should care for people. And to me, that's a horrifying thought because I've never been a socialist and yet I believe we should behave compassionately. So it's not an aspect of that philosophy. Yeah, I think, uh, uh, 
Yeah, I think George uh, W. Bush tried to bring that into his platform, maybe a symbolic gesture uh, and called it compassionate conservatism. Um, and, and he did emphasize education, even though his system of education didn't quite work very well, the, the, you know, no child, no left, child left behind. It just didn't work very well. No. <laughs> no quite no, a few I, have I, been left behind during the program. I, I suspect that George W. Bush is a compassionate man. I think having Don Rumsfeld one yeah. side and Dick Cheney the other meant that he was also completely ineffectual um, in, in making the society better. Um, and it, I, I would say, and you know, I get into trouble with everybody because I don't take any side because I'm an equal opportunity hater, as uh, our comedian Stuart Lee puts it. I, I, you know, when I look at Barack Obama, I don't see that it happened. You know, the eight years of of having, you know, it didn't mend the society. The foreign policy was catastrophic, leaving Russia with a foothold in the Arab countries for the first time since the great game began at the beginning of the 19th century. They're yeah. finally there. Um, getting China upset militarily, not doing anything about Afghanistan and the surge. These were terrible errors. Yet I think he's a compassionate and you know, well-meaning man. I, I must say, moving up to today, I, I had significant suspicion about Joe Biden and you know, we're going to see another neoliberal agenda where everything's about filling in forms and ticking boxes and no work gets done. But I must say that I've been very, you know, I've been pleased with, with the executive orders that have come out with, the, you know, he seems to be actually doing something after four years of abject chaos with the man who, you know, you see him on camera going, I am the chosen one, you know, and talking about beautiful, clean coal. Has he ever seen coal? You know, do rich people see coal? I've never seen clean coal. Well, you know, as to that, the coal industry hasn't benefited during the last four years because, because of the market, not not because of, of promotion. You know, it's it's about the market, and uh, if there isn't any money in it, people aren't going to invest in it. That's the bottom line. You know, the, the businessmen are smarter than the politicians when it comes down to that kind of thing. And pouring subsidies into industry and into the banks, of course, that, you know, when Clinton did the final stage of in 1999 of saying, oh, well, commercial and investment banks can get back together again. That led to a catastrophe that has not been addressed in law. You can still do it. The guy who was running Lehman Brothers just walked off and started another hedge fund and we will move into the next catastrophe. And the capacity to give trillions of dollars to bankers who've already, you know, investment bankers, I'm not after the commercial banks here, to, to run hedge funds and throw the money away and build themselves wonderful palaces, none of which is reclaimed, where you can't afford to feed children, where you can't afford to house and clothe children. Mm -hmm. There is something severely wrong, especially in a country which claims it has more practicing Christians than any other country in the world outside of, I think, Portugal, you know, that what kind of Christianity is that where, where you're not, you know, you're where Bill Gates and George Soros and Donald Trump can have these palatial estates and there are kids, what, 25% of children in the United States are below the poverty line, 20% here in, in the UK. So for me, there's no justification yeah. for that. 
and that's to do with compassion. Well, well, the justification, the, 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 yeah, John, the justification for that point of view comes from the Bible itself and in what's purported to be Jesus' words, the poor you have always with you. And that's sort of a, a, a smoothing over of the problem. Well, they're gonna be there anyway, so don't get so excited about it, you know, that kind of a, an idea. Yeah, and but it, I, I think in the context of the whole of the gospel, and neither of us are Christians, so we probably shouldn't be talking about this, um, but in the context of the whole of the gospel, we have to be very careful not to take things literally. So when Jesus, for example, says, if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out. If your right hand offend thee, chop it off. I don't think he meant us to actually do it. And I haven't met many one-eyed, one-handed Christians. So I think that there is an essential message of care and compassion also within the Gospels and, you know. Now, now it's interesting, um, Saad would agree with you on that point. Well, there you go. He wouldn't attack me. And no, we, see, there, a, there, are, there are places of meeting here. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's what we want to encourage, that rather than having a, a honey badger debate where um, we, you know, throw facts at each other and evidence at each other, we have some, I, I don't like to have arguments with people. It, it bores me. You know, it, it just, people get so frayed and upset. It's so, such a waste of time. It, I, I don't like watching boxing matches, you know, watching two people inflict brain damage on each other, just for some reason doesn't appeal to me. And the same in, in debate, what I want to see is people discussing ideas seeing how the evidence fits together and seeing how their evidence might actually not be evidence, you know, which we've, we've often seen in the history of science that something that was taken to be true, like the gene, may not actually be true. That, that when you get, so, so it might make a good story that we, it's like all of the stuff in the 30s about aggression that Conrad Lorenz pushed forward. Um, it, it's not true. It's a misperception of humanity based in part upon the comparison with Pan Troglodytes, the chimpanzee, before they knew about bonobos, before they knew there was this other creature that was similarly less than 2% genetically different that wasn't alpha male, domineering and aggressive um, and sorted its problems out a different way. But that was used as a proof. You know, we are related right. to them and therefore, well, not really. Um, Sometimes the evidence can be, you know, pulled out and, and we find new things out. I think we only do that in friendly discussion. And it's bothered me throughout my life when I've dealt with academics, finding how much rancor, how much loathing there is in the different camps of academics. You know, it can be physicists or mathematicians. Wherever you go, people become passionate about ideas because they start taking the honey badger stance rather than the reconciliation stance. Um, when Franz de Waal wrote his astonishing book, Peacemaking Among Primates, somewhere around about 1990, he pointed out, and he's a psychologist studying primates, he pointed out that up until that time, there have been thousands of studies of aggression and two studies of reconciliation that he was aware of. And it's like there were all these 
all of this examination of depression with no examination of happiness you know what what would the state yeah. be things have moved a little bit but learning how i think as a grown-up i think kids like fighting what can i say but when you grow up you realize that collaboration is how you make things it's not by shouting at each other that you build great cathedrals it's by working together and you know developing ideas so i, I think yeah however However, our, our, yeah, our, our species is a warring species. I mean, we, we have a long history of, of battles for territory and, and battles for, for um, trade, um, battles for ideas that, that we shed a lot of blood. Uh, there seems to be this, this, this desire in, in us, especially the male part of the species to become heroic and, and to become a martyr to shed blood for the cause, um, that, that, that's built in, into our- I don't think it is. Symbolic genetic makeup. Ah, it's built uh, into our symbolic makeup, but how would you yeah. explain the Indus Valley civilization, which lasted for 700 years without fighting war? So I don't think it's built in. I think it's something that's created mm -hmm. that comes out of tribalism and the idea of having a chief who has the ear of God and yeah. has to be obeyed. It's authoritarianism in, right. in that way. And I think we've, we've yeah. shown that it, it is possible to, yeah, and again, you, you deal with peacekeepers. I, I had the privilege of spending some time with a, a soldier, um, worked as a security man for me briefly. And he explained that the reason he'd become a soldier was because he wanted to defend people. Now, I grew up in a town where there was barracks yeah. where they had boy soldiers and they wanted to hurt people. That was pretty evident from what they did on a Friday and Saturday night in our public houses. Um, and because they were lads, they didn't do very well because they came up against grown men. But he, that difference that, that he realized, and, and he was the kind of guy, he walked, he's a physical instructor in the Marines. And he walked down the street and you could see the kids it had been loitering on the walls, all kind of fade away because he had that sort of presence. But he was somebody who his aggression was not, yeah. you know, to harm. So I don't think that it, I think the idea of aggression has been so um, pushed into our society. The idea of competition, the idea of fighting with others. I don't think- Well, you know, think, think about, yeah. Yeah, think about the, uh, the difference between the the ancient cultures of, of Sparta, which was a warlike, um, uh, you know, and, and they practically brainwashed their youth to, to, to live like that. And, and Athens, again, which prided itself, at least in part, on, on intellectual development. Uh, but I've got to get going in a bit here because I have snow to shovel over at my mother's house. <laughs> Um, but I just like to finish on this idea. I mean, is he calls this the parasitic mind? I mean, is it, and it seems like he's saying that our minds are parasitic, or is it that we have parasites in the mind that are fed into it by bad ideas? You know, I, I, I'm not sure where he's going with that. Um, I'm, I was thinking in, in my review when I compared it to uh, Conway and Siegelman's book, Snapping. Exactly. America's epidemic of. Per 
personality change. And they came up with disease. this meme, if you want to call it information disease, mm -hmm. you know, which is very similar to this idea that, that, that you can have uh, these, these patho pathogens, you know, in, in the ideas in our mind. Um, I don't know where all that's going, you know, as, as far as argument, if it even works very well, but, but, it, but it's a way to frame the problem because obviously, uh, you know, some of the ideas we get are wrong. And, and I remember the first time I ever lectured about the cult problem was, was at a Catholic school in Philadelphia. And uh, I hadn't thought about lecturing about this. This is back in the 1980s, mid 80s. So I came up with this talk, and the first thing that popped into my mind to give people an idea what this was, I told the story of when, when I was fishing as a kid around eight years old or seven years old, and there were older guys there fishing by the creek in, in my town, and uh, there was a toad hopping about, and I went to pick it up. You know, I was just going to pick it up, and one of the older guys yelled at me, he says, don't touch that, you're going to get warts, you know, and so I pulled my hands back, and that idea stuck in my head until I studied biology in high school and read something that toads do not cause warts. You know, so biology class deprogrammed me, so to speak, of a meme, uh, uh, an infectious or uh, uh, a wrong meme idea that was in my head for perhaps five, six years. Uh, so that was one example of, of that kind of thing, that, that these ideas just in, in my head and that image stayed. It, it interests me that um, Richard Dawkins and um, Jonathan Miller have put forward the idea that religion is a virus. And mm. Jonathan Miller, the late Jonathan Miller, was in fact a medical doctor. So he knew what a virus was and how a virus works. And he should have known that this is a very invidious um, yeah. metaphor. And while I personally have a debt to Conway and Siegelman, particularly for the article they wrote, Information Disease, because it gave me a starting point to think. Yeah. But I don't agree with the idea of snapping. I don't agree that our yeah. brains become infected by ideas. I don't think there's any such thing as a meme. Um, we have ideas. And the more that we try and live in an abstract world where we use metaphors, absolute metaphors, as the general semanticists call them, we get lost. We start wandering around in a territory of, the, and I think that's what's happened in America, that, that rather than seeing people and the need to care, there's this, well, you're a libtard, or, you know, or a, a repturd or a you know some silly idea that 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 comes in place which excludes our humanity uh and, and you know I but think but it also I, I i think it also excludes reasoning because Absolutely. you've suddenly placed something like like lifton calls into a loaded term mm -hmm. uh, uh uh kind of a conversation ending slogan yeah, and that's the end of it. You know, that's all it's about. Yeah, yeah. And, and people are just honey badgers throwing things at each other instead of people yeah. seeking to come to agreement, seeking to find out what is useful and move forward. And, you know, being locked in these yeah. silly battles, you know, where 
Yeah, let me <laughs> let me finish with yeah. yeah. Let me finish with this. Um, in my short review, which I'll expand on for for an ICSA, uh, but but I I took on the honey badger idea and I said, you know, this doesn't really work when you're trying to educate somebody. I said, however, you know, if if I ever met one, I would probably back away. But let's say I was hunting and my hunting dog got into a scrap with one of these things, well, I would shoot it to save my hunting dog. And then I said, I'll stop there, you know, because <laughs> this is where this thing devolves into. Yeah. When you're dealing with honey badgers, there's always a bigger weapon to destroy the thing. Yeah, so it's, it's an excellent point. And perhaps on that point, we, we will, you can go and shovel some snow for your aged mother and um, we'll uh, switch off the recording and yes. arrange an, another date, okay. hopefully. So this has been great, Joe. Thanks so much, as ever. I'm John Atak, my guest, Joseph. Mark. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Yep. Hi, John here. Thanks for watching. We'd appreciate it very much if you would click like, as well as subscribe, and click the bell for notifications. Every dollar helps, and we welcome new patrons on Patreon. Or you can make a one-off payment with any currency through PayPal. Thanks so much. Honey badgers are not well known for their ability to reason.